You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Hello again. Long time no see. Uh, I want to say hello to everyone watching online as well. Hope you're all doing well. Um, Today, as, as you might have heard Blair mention while he's praying, we're going to be embarking on a new sermon series through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, which we've titled Ears to Hear. So I'm really excited about that. Um, all, the, all the practical advice that a pastor might receive about how to start off the new year would say, start off with some hype, with some, you know, a sermon about, you know, how excited you are to be at church and what church is all about and vision and all that kind of stuff. But nope, we're going to start with Revelation and it's going to be intense. <laughs> so we're just, we're just going to jump in this year and, and I'm really excited about that and I think you guys can, can handle it or else we wouldn't be doing it. But uh, I also have to apologize right off the bat because this morning in order to introduce the theme of the new sermon series, I'm going to be using a sports analogy. Um, I usually try to avoid sports analogies because they're so cliche, right, along with Lord of the Rings analogies. But sometimes, you know, they just, they just slip out. Um, besides, the Apostle Paul even used sports analogies, so I feel like I'm, I'm allowed to once in a while, too. I think we'll, we'll survive. Um, anyways, here's my sports analogy. Recently, I watched a couple of uh, documentaries which follow... Um, these documentaries follow the behind-the-scenes journey of professional soccer clubs as they progress throughout their season in the English Premier League, which is like the NHL of England, right, for soccer. Um, except each player gets paid more than the whole NHL team combined. Uh, <laughs> it's crazy. Um, anyways, and in one of the episodes, they were, they were highlighting the struggles of, of one of the, the younger players on, on this particular team, and he was a potential superstar, he had a lot of potential, but he hadn't been doing very well or scoring many goals. And because of this, he was called into the coach's office for a chat. It's like being called to the principal's office, right? And, and, and so they showed this conversation. And, and this is how the coach started the conversation with this, with this young player. He said, in his broken English, because he's like Spanish or something, he said, look, I think you feel that so far I like you. I like you as a player. I think you are a nice kid. I want to be a good coach for you and make a connection with you. And then he said this. So it's all start positive, right? And then he says, so I have to tell you always exactly what I think. I see your potential, but... And then the conversation shifted with the coach telling the player exactly what he thought. He basically told him what the player was doing wrong, why he was falling short, what he needed to correct and adjust in his practice and his attitude during the games. He told him to take advantage of the opportunity that he'd been given to get his priorities right. And finally, he told the, prayer, that the player to go analyze and take a good hard look at himself and his potential in light of what the coach was saying. And the reason I'm bringing up this conversation between the coach and, and, and his player here is because as I was watching it, I actually really appreciated the coach's truth and honesty. I appreciated that the coach didn't mince his words. He told it like it is, 
right? And, and I appreciated that while his corrections and criticisms may have stung in the moment, you could tell that they were spoken with the player's best interest at heart. He wanted this player to do well. So he wasn't pointing out this guy's faults and mistakes to make him feel bad or because he didn't like him, but precisely because he did like him and he wanted him to excel and become a better player. And, and the crazy thing is, is that after that conversation, this player started fixing his mistakes and actually turned his season around. He even became one of the top goal scorers on his team. So this conversation was effective. And it also means that he not only listened to the coaches criticisms and suggestions, he took them to heart, and he followed through with them, right? He, so he took ownership, right, and of his errors, and he corrected his errors and his attitude, rather than, you know, the other alternative would be to get offended, right, or, or play the victim card. Well, nobody else on the team is passing to me, or, or, or whatever, or asking for a trade, like, like many players and their egos often do, right? And, and so, I want to highlight that, that what this player did is pretty much a perfect example of what it means in the Bible when we're called to have ears to hear. When we're called to have ears to hear. It means that we're not only called to listen and, and pay attention to the words of correction and instruction being spoken by the Lord, but to also humbly take them to heart and follow through with them. Hearing in the Bible, whenever you read the word hear, or most of the time when you read the word hear in the Bible, it's always synonymous with doing or obeying. Hearing the word of the Lord always demands a response. Like when I ask my kids to clean their room, they can be like, okay, Dad, but then if they don't clean their room, did they really hear me? Right? That's never happened. But anyways, I'm not going to mince my words here either. I'm going to tell you the truth that, that as a church, we're going to be entering into a season where we'll be asked and required to humble ourselves with ears to hear. And it's not always going to be easy. Just read through Revelation 1 to 3, and it hits you hard. We're entering a season where, where we're going to be called to have ears to hear, a season in which the Lord is going to sit us down like the coach to his player in order to correct us and discipline us and even tell us like it is, not because he doesn't like us or because he wants us to feel bad, but precisely because he loves us and he wants the best for us. Um, Beth Moore, I don't know if you've ever heard of her, Beth Moore tweeted this the other day, which I thought was perfect for this series. She wrote, I'll tell you something about Jesus. He'll tell you the truth. You may not like it, but he'll tell you the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So Jesus is going to sit us down during this series, and he's going to tell us the truth. He's going to tell us the truth about who he is and what he's going to, and what he's going to do and what he's going to accomplish, which is what the book of Revelation is all about. And then in light of that, he's going to tell us the truth about who we are and who he's called us to be. He's going to remind us of our, our potential and celebrate what we're doing well as a church, absolutely. 
But he's also going to tell us the truth about where we're in error and where we're still allowing sin and the world to control us. And so again, as, as we go through this series, an important thing that we need to remember throughout, especially when, when his words of truth or, or discipline strike deep and, and might bring conviction, is that like the coach to his player, it's, it's for our own good. It's to set us free. It's to draw us into his perfect will and purpose. And, and it's to prepare us for revival. And so this is the invitation from Revelation 3.22. The Lord says to us, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is exactly what we're going to attempt to do over the next couple of months. We're going to be studying through the first, again, we're going to be studying through the first three chapters of Revelation, which contain seven letters given to seven specific churches, respectively, which were dictated from the mouth of the Lord and recorded by the Apostle John. And um, for some context, we're going, to, we're going to jump into Revelation 1, verses 1 to 2, and verses 9 to 11, just, just to kind of get a context of what's going on, what's happening here. It's kind of the setup of the whole thing. So, Revelation 1, 1 to 2, and verses 9 to 11 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. We'll jump to verse 9. He says, and then it says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So that's kind of the setup. So very quickly then, we find out that the, that the Apostle John, who most scholars agree was, was the last living apostle at this time, the other original disciples or apostles are thought to have been martyred by this point. But John, who was probably around somewhere between 80 to 90 years old, was still alive and, and was now exiled, and most likely as a prisoner on a Greek island called Patmos. Or Patmos, Patmos, I don't know. Isn't there like a Mrs. Patmos from Downton Abbey or something? I don't know. I didn't watch that. Well, I did. Just kind of came into my head right now. So that's how we can remember it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, anyways, ar archaeology and, and historical records point to the, the likelihood that, that this was a location of a stone quarry where they would make prisoners work, you know, work at the stone quarry. So this, if this is true, this would have been brutal work for John as an elderly fellow, um, which could be what he was referring to with his patient endurance for Christ, you know, when he's mentioning his current suffering and tribulation for the sake of Christ. That could be what he's talking about. Um, but whether John was a prisoner or, or whether he's, you know, on the island of Patmos and exiled for a different reason, we don't really fully know. Ultimately, uh, you know, the, the reason behind the reason, as you could probably guess, it was because he was preaching the name of Jesus and the Word of God. 
So he's on this island, and then one day, on a Sunday, the Lord's Day, he's praying. And it says he's, he's in the Spirit, and Jesus speaks to him and instructs him to record everything he's about to witness and to then send this testimony, a revelation, to seven specific churches. So I have a map. John, if you want to throw that up there. There it is. All right. So just to kind of give us like a little idea of what's going on. So he's on the the island of, of Patmos there, which is in the Aegean Sea. So it's between... Greece and Asia Minor, and then um, those are the cities that he's writing to in the green there. Uh, That would be modern-day Turkey, western modern-day Turkey, and you can also tell that the the order that he writes the cities in in the the text is the order that they would actually be delivered. Like if someone like took his letter and then delivered them to each city, that's that's where they would go in counterclockwise, Ephesus, Smyrna, then Pergamum, then Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, so that's the kind of the, the, the route that the letter would have been taken originally. So you kind of get a picture of what's happening. So he's way on that island. He would have basically no communication with these churches, so he doesn't really know what's going on there, but the Lord does, and that's all recorded here for them. And so these letters are meant to speak to each church separately, but also um, as, as a whole. All right. Good? Kind of get the, the, the picture what's going on. Um, all right, so, so what we'll find as well as we go through this series is that each letter within the book specifically describes to each church community their unique triumphs and their failings. Like, here's what you're doing while living for Jesus, and here's where you're falling short and in error. And then in the same vein then, the letter also contains prophetic warnings and specific instructions for them to turn from their errors and back to living according to their calling and identity in Christ. And, and while these letters are written specifically for these churches, as I said, we'll also find that the lessons are, are going to be applicable for us today, that if we have ears to hear, as it says, we can also learn from them and be changed and blessed by them as well. Of course, the tendency for us as prideful human beings with fragile self-esteems, right? The tendency for us is to become offended and to be put on, on guard, right? When, when someone points out something about ourselves or our thinking that isn't good or needs to be corrected. You know, like if someone says to us, hey, I just want to let you know you're, you're being a jerk right now. We might say, I don't need to hear this, and then, you know, storm off, you know, and like slam the door behind us, right? Nobody here has done that, right? (laughs) We we don't like to be told that we're in the wrong, right? It it hurts our feelings. But, But in the end, those who truly love us, this is the truth, those who truly love us won't let us continue to walk in error. Friends don't let friends drive drunk, right, as, as, as they say. Or, or they don't let them drive on the wrong side of the road, for that matter, right? And here's another example. You know, if my fly is down, right, I want someone to tell me if my fly is down or if I have a you know, booger hanging over my nose or something before I get up on stage and preach a sermon. And, and if someone notices and, and they don't tell me, well, I don't think that person would respect me or, or even care about me, right? 
especially if they think it's funny. (laughs) But here's the thing. Jesus respects and he cares about us. Jesus desires to see us blessed and and walking in the light, and therefore he's going to tell us if and when we're stumbling in the dark. In fact, in Revelation 1 to 3, it tells us that it tells us the goal of all these letters. It says, it says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is, is near. So, so the purpose of these letters of, of discipline are, are to wake us up, right? They're to bring the churches into a place of, of blessing, again, into a time of revival, and, and so the choice on our end is how we're going to respond to his words, especially when they bring conviction or correction. Will his words of rebuke just go in one ear and out the other? I don't agree with that. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing, right? Like, or, or will we get personally offended? I don't need to hear this, right? Or I don't know why I'm talking like a southerner now. Um, you know, will we get offended or, or, or will we humbly listen and take it to heart. Well, we say, yeah. I, I have been in the wrong. I have been off base. Forgive me, Lord. My hope and prayer is that that's what we'll do during this series, that, that we'll take it to heart and that we'll follow through. Especially, again, in the knowledge that that Jesus' words are are written out of a deep love and concern for us. And this seems to be what what John wants to remind his readers of as well, before he gets into the nitty-gritty. Revelation 1, 4-8, he writes this. He says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia... So, we always sign our name at the bottom of letters, right? In, In those days, they would write their name at the beginning. They'd say their name and then who they're writing to. So, John... That's what's happening there. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And then he says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's such an incredible passage, right? So, but even, even in John's initial greeting to the churches, he seems to want to draw his readers to, to the reality of, of the grace and the peace and, and the sovereignty and authority, timelessness and love of the three persons of the Trinity, the Holy Father, the living Son, and, and the perfect Holy Spirit. That together the, the Lord God is the God of the present, past, and future, the beginning and the end. And that this God is for them. This, this almighty God is for them. And that he's already saved them 
And he's already set them free from their sins so they could live as his priests, which means as his, his remnants and his lights on this earth until he comes again. And he specifically reminds them that Jesus loves them. Almost, almost as if to, to make sure, first of all, that their focus is on the Lord, but also to make sure that they know that Jesus has their best interest at heart, like he's already proved over and over. It's like he's trying to put them in the right mindset before they get into the difficult and honest content of the letters. It's like John wants them to remember that it's because Jesus loves them and has called them to be lights in the world that he's going to tell them, and now us, like it is. Right? And this is a reminder that, that we're given throughout the Bible, specifically in, in Deuteronomy 8, verse 5, which says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord God disciplines you. Or like in Hebrews when it says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves. And, and discipline isn't, isn't punishment, right? It's steering someone in the right direction. Showing them where they're in the wrong and, and, and steering them into the right. So again, he, he corrects us because he cares. But because Jesus wants us to walk in blessing and freedom, he's going to tell us like it is. But because Jesus wants us to be ready for what must soon take place, that is the day when he comes again on the clouds, right? The Son of Man coming again on the clouds, which is as we learned from Daniel 7, you might remember the Son of Man coming again on the clouds that we talked about. We learned that earlier this year when, when He comes on that last day in the glory of God and in the victory of His death and resurrection as the King of kings and Lord of lords surrounded by a host of witnesses all in order to, to crush sin and evil for good and make all things new. A, a, a glorious day in which every person in heaven and earth and from every tribe, nation, and tongue will finally see him completely for who he is, whether they like it or not, as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And therefore, we'll be able to do nothing but bow down at his throne. But because Jesus wants us to be part of those who are bowing willingly and joyfully, covered in his righteousness and not among those who have rejected him and are weeping in their judgment, he's going he's gonna to tell us like it is. But again, are, are we going to pay attention? We, we kind of have to decide. Are we going to pay attention? Are we going to listen? Are we going to have ears to hear? Speaking of, of not listening or understanding, one of the frustrating things about the book of Revelation, is that, is that I th people often miss the point, right? Like, it's so, it's so weird about Revelation. Um, but the point of the book, I just want to mention this, the point of the book isn't fighting with each other over when the rapture is going to happen or, or, or about figuring out the secret clues so you can find the exact date when Jesus is coming again. When the end of the world's going to happen? No. The point of the book is to exalt Jesus Christ. And subsequently to be inspired to live with the anticipation 
of his second coming. That's the point of the book. That's why it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of the end of the world or whatever. It's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Greek word for revelation is uh, apocalypsis, apocalypsis, in which we get the word apocalypse, right? And so when, when someone says apocalypse, when they talk about the apocalypse, you know, what, what do you think about, right? These words, it, it, this word, it just fills our minds with like Mad Max, you know, images or fallout images or Armageddon type scenarios, right? But, but it actually just means to, to reveal, like the meaning of that word just means to reveal or to uncover or to disclose, right? It's, it's like when you, say, say you go to a play at a theater and the, you know, the, big red, the big red curtains shut, right? And then, you know, you kind of hear like the, the, the symphony start and then the curtain starts to get drawn back and it, and it reveals this, this beautiful set piece on the stage, which you knew would be there and you kind of, you kind of maybe had an idea of what it would, might look like. But, but you didn't fully know what it, would, what it would truly look like until the curtain was drawn back and everything was revealed. And the book of Revelation is like that. It's the drawing back of the curtain of Christ. It's giving us a, a glimpse and, and glorious image of Jesus and what he's going to do. In other words, the book of Revelation is meant to reveal to us the truth about Jesus now and about what's going to happen in the last days when he comes again. In both cases, though, it's the victorious reign of Jesus Christ. He reigns right now at the right hand of God, and he's going to show everybody that reign when he comes again. Daniel Aiken writes, Revelation. He says, I believe the theme of the book could be described as the majesty and glory of the warrior lamb, King Jesus, who is coming again to rule and reign forever. I believe the book addresses the future, but I believe the book is even more interested in exalting Jesus. So regardless of how you understand the book, if you miss this, you have missed its main message. So, so this this book is a revelation of, from, and about Jesus Christ, meant to fill us with, with hope and anticipation for His second coming. But it's also meant, meant to draw us into living for Him with, with a sense of expectancy, obedience, and urgency in light of His coming. Right? When the Bible says Jesus is coming soon, it says it quite, quite often in the New Testament, the Bible says Jesus is coming soon. That doesn't mean that He's, that he's coming tomorrow, Right? You know, a day is like a thousand years to God. When it says he's coming soon, that doesn't mean he's necessarily coming tomorrow or, or next year, right? What it means is that the Bible wants us to live our lives as if he is, with urgency and hope. Daniel Aiken again writes, the, the purpose of Revelation is, is not to, to titillate our imagination to wild speculative interpretations it is to inspire and motivate us to faithfulness and obedience. John wants us to read, hear, and keep what is written in Revelation because in doing so, we will be blessed. And the time is near. What we hear, we need to obey. What we believe, we need to live out. The nearness of the Lord's return is meant to challenge us to live faithful lives. And so we're called to have ears to hear. 
as we look forward to Christ's return. And then as if on cue, John describes for us a glorious image that he's given of what the Lord's return is going to look like. This is, what, this is what we have to look forward to. Revelation 1, 12 to 20. It says, then I, this is John speaking, and he says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that, are, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So at this, at this image, imagery of Christ's coming, right, in all that glory, John, John falls at his feet. No surprise. And this is what he says everyone will do when he comes again. But Jesus puts his hand on him. He comforts him. He says to him, do not be afraid. Remember, I died, but I am alive forevermore. I hold the keys of death and Hades. In other words, Jesus is is revealing himself to us in all his glory, not to scare us, not to make us afraid, but as our living Savior who, is, who has conquered the power of death. And, and as such, He beckons us to, to see Him as the victorious and eternal King who comes to usher us with Him into resurrection life. Therefore, we need to understand that this, this description and, and imagery of Jesus' second coming is, is actually meant to convey for us hope and anticipation as something to, to look forward to, not something to be afraid of. This is also why it uses this, this picture of Jesus here. It uses a lot of symbolism and imagery from the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah, right? It's meant to create that, that in anticipation in, in the same way God's people anticipated Him in their exile. The imagery here also gives us a vivid glimpse of the, the majesty and authority of Jesus and also what He'll accomplish when He comes again. And that's what this is. That you're not supposed to... He's, Jesus probably isn't going to literally look like what's described there. This is all imagery of, of what it means and what he'll accomplish when he comes again. In the same way that the lampstands lamp represent the churches and the seven stars represent the, the angels that go to each church. So you see there's imagery, right? Metaphor. But all this imagery ultimately is reminding us that, that, that Jesus is the righteous one. He's the son of man. He's the Savior who has the wisdom of, of the ages, 
and he's, is equated to God with holiness and majesty, who protects and, and dwells among the churches, which are the lampstands again, who, who commands the, the heavenly host, who is sovereign and, and holds all the knowledge of the universe, who is permanent in power and authority, and who will come with a, that double-edged sword in his mouth, that is, he'll come bearing the word of God and with righteous judgment, which will bring destruction to evil and restoration to the righteous. And we're going to be speaking more about this, this image of, of Christ as, as we go throughout the series, because what's interesting is that in each letter to the, to the seven churches, they, they start by mentioning a couple of these characteristics of Jesus that are listed here. Almost like a, like a reminder to these churches, maybe, of, of an aspect of Christ they've, they've neglected to consider or, or fully acknowledge, or something that they, that they do acknowledge. We're going to find that out. Um, But ultimately, this is the goal, right? The goal, the goal of the book of Revelation is to get the reader to gaze upon and acknowledge Jesus for who he is and what he'll accomplish. And this is done through reading and hearing the words that he's revealed to us, also that we might be corrected in our ways and filled with a renewed hope and confidence for when we see him revealed in full. And so finally then, my, my prayer and hope this morning, and as I've been preparing and throughout this series, my prayer and hope, my, my plea and, and my request for each of you is that as we go through this series, and even as we join together in reading the New Testament, that we would do so with ears ready to hear. that we would humbly and readily listen to the words of the one who loves us and wants the best for us, whether they're words of encouragement or reproof. As the Lord says in Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. That's our response. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So what are we called to do? Be zealous and repent. So let's gaze, let's set our gaze on Christ. Let's set our eyes on Christ so that we, like John, would see his glory. We'd hear his words, and in hearing them, that they would draw us to, to repent and, and humbly fall at his feet as our Savior and King so that he can lift us up in glory and into a life of blessing where we can live a, a zealous life for him. That is my plea, that is my hope and prayer for us this morning, that we would set our eyes on Christ and that he would change us. Mm -hmm.